Good evening, dear friends and fellow travelers to eternity. We're certainly grateful to be together tonight in view of the fact that although the world would not receive His grace in most instances, the Son of God came to this world to save us from our sins. And we rejoice in that fact tonight and we assemble in His name to honor Him and His Word this evening. We're so grateful to be together. This congregation has feed me so well. I'm not sure but what there's a plot to feed me so much that the lesson will have to be abbreviated. But the food is terrific, and we appreciate all you're doing in that way. It's great to be with Brother Tony. You, I know everybody. Everybody knows Tony loves him to death, and rightly so. We appreciate him. He's a continual and positive source of encouragement in our life. And it's good to know the good work he's doing here with you. I know you're glad to have him as he is to have you. Well, tonight I found out my son could keep a secret. I didn't know the brethren were coming from Tiftonia like this. Here they've all come out tonight. I appreciate it so much coming. Jason didn't breathe a word of it. We've been together all day. So you can trust in him to keep a secret. He's like the lady. Somebody said, how old are you? And she said, can you keep a secret? And uh, the fellow said, yeah. And she said, so can I. <laughs> well, Jason can keep a secret. I'm very edified by your presence. It's great to see Brother Charles again. Get to be with him. Now, uh, I told Sheila, she's with my dad, as you know, over in Fordyce, Arkansas. He's rehabbing over there. And Last night I was kind of uh, uh, alarmed when Tony said these lessons are on the Internet. She was hoping it would be so she could hear them. And I was thinking, what did I say about her that I'll have to <laughs> and, and I recall that I told the story about a, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, you know, that she reminded me of that. So I went ahead and confessed that today. And she said, you didn't tell him that, did you? <laughs> I said, yes, I did, dear. <laughs> so I've got it cleared. You can go ahead and listen to that on the Internet. It won't cost me any more for you to hear that. And I appreciate those lessons being out there, and I hope they'll do some good in that way. Well, tonight I'd like for us to study about the man who fought against God. And you might have some idea as to who that is just by looking at the hieroglyphics up there. And if you can read those, I'd like to know what they say. I hope they don't say anything, anything inappropriate. I want you to know that down through the course of history, there have been a lot of men who fought against God. You think about notorious people, in, and more in our time, who have been fighting against God and against humanity. And they certainly stand out as reprehensible. It's unconscionable that there are some people who have within them the ability to fight against God and the things of God. But here in the Bible, we have a man tonight who fought against God. And part of the record of his battle against Jehovah is recorded for us, and I believe we may draw strong lessons from that. Now, I'm only going to look at three, although there's a wealth of material to be found concerning this man. If you've not guessed already, I'm obviously talking about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Well, you may remember that God had wanted the children of Israel to be released from Egyptian bondage. You know, sometimes we live in an instant world and you think, well, why didn't he just turn them loose and let them go? Well, the sin of the Amorites was not yet full, the Bible tells us. God was being patient with another nation, giving them time and opportunity to repent. And the children of Israel were going to remain in Egyptian bondage or slavery for 430 years, according to Acts chapter 7 and verse 23. And now then, the time of their release was coming. You know God is in control of this world of ours. may not look like it sometimes, but oh, He is. God rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever He will, Daniel 4 and verse 35. We always want to keep that in mind and be subject to the will of God. Because God raises up nations and God brings nations down. And in this instance, we're going to see a mighty nation punished for its wickedness. 
Well, in order to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go, Moses is commissioned of God to go and simply stand before him and say that he's there, a man on a mission, with a message to let my people go, Exodus 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh would harden his heart and not allow the children of Israel to go when asked by God and his representative Moses. Now, there's something I want you to notice. I know we've studied this at Tiftonia. When you read through these chapters in Exodus, the Bible will say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And on the surface of it, when you read that, it seems like God is saying, let my people go. And then he turns around and hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh can't let them go. But as you read through this reading tonight and the few verses we will be taking a look at, I'd like for you to notice just exactly what hardens Pharaoh's heart. God is going to ask him to do something that he does not want to do. And that's going to harden his heart. Brethren and friends, that's a principle to tonight in 2013. If God is asking us to do something and we're dead set against it, it is very likely, if not probable, that we will harden our hearts against the will of God. As you read through this, and I know from childhood we've studied the story of the ten plagues here in Exodus. You're just baffled that a man wouldn't initially say, sure, they can go if that's God's will. And then through that series of ten plagues, he refuses, persistently refuses, when the demonstration is, look, this is the will of God. No one should have any doubt but what it is God's will for these people to be released. Don't you get that? And it's difficult for us to imagine someone not complying with heaven's terms. But then we look to today and we see simple things God has asked us. He's not asked us to do anything that's out of the boundary of our ability. And yet there are those who adamantly resist and who harden their heart against God. So God is no more today hardening our hearts to keep us from doing His will as He was with ancient Pharaoh. He's asking Him to do something He didn't want to do. The hardening depends upon the kind of heart we have. You remember the review of these ten plagues. The first one is water to blood. You see the verses there in Exodus chapter 7. The water is turned to blood, and still Pharaoh persists in retaining the children of Israel. Frogs are throughout the land. They're in chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. And Pharaoh is still dissuaded from listening to the request. The third plague is lice throughout the land. Again, the 8th chapter of the book of Exodus. Then there are flies. Which one of these would have convinced you? You like to think I would have been long since convinced. But here come flies everywhere. Then there is the moraine of the cattle in the ninth chapter, still unconvinced. Boils and blames breaking out in man and beast throughout all the land. And then the plague of hail that is destroying all of the land. Following that, the locusts just devouring whatever's left from the hail. Chapter 10. And then there is darkness that is so dark it can be felt. Uh, we went in Cumberland Caverns up here years ago and got way back there in the back. You know what they did? Cut the lights out on us. <laughs> well, you get your money's worth when you do that. And you couldn't obviously couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was darkness, but it was not a darkness that could be felt. We had the anticipation those lights would cut back on. But there was light in the houses of the children of Israel. And then there's the death of the firstborn directly impacting Pharaoh and his household, as well as all of those throughout Egypt. Ten plagues over Egypt. Here they are listed. Water to blood, frogs, lice, flies, moraine, boil, hail, 
locust darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. Look at what it's taking to convince this man not to harden his heart. Now, it's an interesting thing. There is a museum in Leiden, Holland, the Leiden Museum in Holland. There's a papyrus that is written from a later period, but most scholars think that it's a copy of a papyrus from an earlier dynasty. It's interesting that papyrus is a reed grown along the Nile River, and then it's woven to make a paper kind of substance that's very durable. It could have been from the end of the 13th dynasty, describing the conditions that prevailed after the plagues had struck. Well, here's what it reads, and I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't been there to see this, but I have seen it on television, a kind of a um, video tour of this library. And there are impressive artifacts from ancient Egypt that are there. Of the places one would like to go, that would certainly be an interesting place to visit. This papyrus reads this way. I'll just read it for us. Nay, but the heart is violent. Plague stalks through the land, and blood is everywhere. Nay, but the river is blood. Does a man drink from it? As a human, he rejects it. He thirsts for water. Nay, but gates, columns, and walls are consumed with fire. Nay, but men are few. He that lays his brother in the ground is everywhere. Nay, but the son of the high-born man is no longer to be recognized. The stranger people from outside are come into Egypt. Nay, but corn has perished everywhere. People are stripping, stripped of clothing, perfume, and oil. Everyone says there is no more. The storehouse is bare. It has come to this. The king has been taken away by poor men. Well, I don't know if you can see direct references to the ten plagues there and to the plight of Pharaoh in Egypt at the time, but I think you can certainly see some indirect references there that would clearly be explained by the events that we've just reviewed in the ten plagues. And I find that an interesting corroboration of what the Bible has to say on the subject. Let's focus our attention for a few minutes this evening on the man who fought against God and notice his interaction with God's spokesman and prophet, Moses. Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh. These men are in their 80s, and as they appear, they come with the request to let my people go. Now, in Romans chapter 9, in verse 17, the New Testament writer tells us about this matter of applying what we are studying to God's purposes, seeing how God's purposes relate to it. In Romans chapter 9, verse 17, Paul says, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. In Romans chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, here the discussion has to do with God showing mercy and having compassion on whom he will and not extending it to those otherwise. And so we find in Pharaoh a man who is setting an example for the purposes of God. God raised him up that he might show his power in him. And you see that power in these ten plagues. Now Paul is telling us about that. There's obviously a tremendously powerful and influential lesson that we can learn from going back and studying about what Pharaoh does and the mistakes that he is making right before our eyes this evening. These ten plagues, I'd like to drop down. You'll notice that there's a pattern that follows with each of the ten plagues. There's a request. Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh asking, let my people go. That's their request persistently throughout. They never change their request. Pharaoh may come back and say, no, I will not do it. He may try to strike some compromise. 
He may ask, as he does in each of the instances, that this plague be removed. He's unconvinced. And then you would think he would be convinced if the plague is removed. But he will harden his heart. Again, to me, that underscores the fact that God is not somehow miraculously hardening his heart. He's doing it of his own accord because his heart should be soft and pliable when his request, he makes the request to remove the plague. And when that plague is removed, he ought to be happy, right? At least willing to think about God's request, but he doesn't do it. And he hardens his heart and does not keep his word. Let's go down tonight to, there are three points that are here. In the time we have this evening, I would like to endeavor to cover and see the application to our own lives. You remember with the flies, this is in chapter 8, in verses 20 through 32, where you see flies throughout the land. After this event, Pharaoh is now going to speak up. And he is going to say that it will be all right for the people to go. This is in chapter 8 at verse 28 when he gives this concession. He says in verse 27, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the matter. Oh, excuse me, I'm still in Romans. Let me get back here in Exodus. We don't get in Romans. We'll be here all night if I get to preach out in Romans. I just got three points in Exodus to make. In Exodus chapter 8 and verse 32, here you'll find Pharaoh, he is going to make this statement to Moses. The Bible tells us that the Lord did according to the word of Moses in removing the plague of the flies. And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people. There remained not one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time, neither would he let the people go. You'll find that here... Moses is instructing Pharaoh concerning the matter, let the people go. Well, he's happy to let them go, but he doesn't want them to go very far. It'll be fine for you to go, but don't go very far. It was the case that the children of Israel wanted to go out into the wilderness for the purpose of worshiping God, and it was not going to happen. Pharaoh was not going to allow it. He tries to strike a compromise. Moses argues no, if we stay here and we offer sacrifices in the presence of these Egyptians who are worshiping these animals, it will surely come back on us. So you can go, don't go very far. That was not an acceptable conclusion, and it is rejected by Moses. Next, I want you to notice after the locust plague, turning over to the 10th chapter of the book of Exodus. Here in verse 11, once they are taken away, notice that Moses goes before them and he has this to say. We will go with our young and with our old and with our sons and with our daughters and with our flocks and with our herds will we go. For we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you as I will let you go and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now ye that are men and serve the Lord. For that ye did desire. And they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. He would allow them to go this time. Moses made it clear everyone is going. Men, women, and children are going to this feast of the Lord to worship God. Pharaoh said, I hear you saying that, but it's not going to happen that way. I will allow the men to go worship. Moses, again, does not accept that conclusion. Please observe that regarding the worship, it involves the whole family. You know, for years we try to get people going to the services of the church, and sometimes they would allow us to take their children. I remember one little boy was unruly, 
And I had to have a discussion with his dad. And his dad said, well, if you'll whip him at church and I'll whip him here, maybe we can get him straight. I said, no, 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 uh uh-uh. That is your responsibility. You need to be going there with him and taking him to worship and not just sending him. You know, we used to go pick up children and sometimes we would take them back home after the service of the church and guess what? Mom and dad not even home. Where have you guys been? We've been waiting on you for an hour. Where were y'all? Oh, we went out to see a movie. I don't think so. You'll find that in regard to worship, God is expecting the heads of the families, the fathers, to bring up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's God's will in that connection. It was not acceptable to Pharaoh for these women and children to be influenced with true worship unto God. And so only the men could go. They didn't leave. They were not going to abide that. last thing I want to notice with you concerning darkness, in chapter 10 and verse 24, Pharaoh is happy to let them go if that plague of darkness will be removed with the provision that their flocks and their herds stay. Verse 24, Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. And Moses said, Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle shall go with us. And then we've long appreciated this statement that has come to be a phrase that is emphatic of a refusal to compromise. Moses says, Our flocks and our herds will go with us and there shall not a hoof be left behind. I want you to notice as we're looking at these three particular instances that there is no compromising with the will of God. Moses is not going to accept compromise. God said, let my people go. That is what God wants. And he is not about to compromise. We need to think about this subject of compromise because there's been so many compromises in religion today. And people think it's just fine. You cannot compromise The will of God. If ever in history there was a time when compromise would have seemed acceptable and appropriate, why not here? Oh, there's no compromise right here in the worship of God, nor is there today. Now let's look at the application of this lesson. This is where I'd like for us to spend the balance of our time this evening. You have Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh and the request to remove the plagues And then the statement on the part of Pharaoh in three times. You can go, chapter 8, verse 28, but just don't go very far away. He thought that level of compromise would be just fine, that that would be all right. Go, but don't go very far away. 8 and verse 28. You think about this statement of compromise that Pharaoh is trying to strike. And I think about what we have today. In regard to the religion of Jesus Christ, he made it plain in the inaugural lesson that we read in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, he said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God has never, nor will he, accept second place. Well, you can be a Christian, you can go to the services of the church, just don't get into it too much. I realize that we begin as babes in Christ and desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby, 1 Peter 2, verse 1 and 2. But it is also the case that after a while, God expects us to be mature and strong as Christians. 
And the writer of Hebrews addresses that in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12 when he says, When for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again the things which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For meat belongeth unto them who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. God expects us, he understands, we'll start out as babes on milk. And he expects us to grow to maturity where we can take the strong meat of the Word of God. That means we know how to rightly divide the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. That means we're letting the Word of God dwell in us richly. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. This concept that is mentioned right here, well, it's all right if you want to be a Christian, but just don't, don't go too far with it. The Lord is clear to indicate His will will be primary in first place in our life. We read some passages earlier in the week about what God requires and expects of us. We're talking about preparing to meet our God. And you'll remember that one of those verses there in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 and 37, was when Jesus was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? Remember the answer he gave? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, strength, and body. Not part of it, but all of it. Sometimes people want to be involved in Christianity, but they really don't want to be fully engaged in it. I'm not really to the point where I want to be praying every day or where I intend to read my Bible every day. It's funny how people are Christians sometimes and they'll say, read the Bible every day? Well, the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the source of our faith, Romans 10 and verse 17. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you're not in the Bible every day, you're going to be disconnected from that source of faith. You'll be out there in the deep where the devil would love you to be, estranged from the Word of God for that day and open to the temptations of the devil. You think he's going to go to sleep? He's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience in Ephesians 2.1. Remember this in 1 Peter 5? The devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. If the local zoo here in McMinnville were to have all the lions escape and be walking around in the city streets, you think you'd just be ready to stroll out there? Well, I won't get out there too far, but I'll go out in the front yard. I'll stroll around the neighborhood. Oh, no. You'd want the city on lockdown if you had lions out in the street until they were captured and secured. The devil's out there all the time. Why does a person not want to be involved in reading and studying his Bible daily in order that he can be prepared to address the wiles or the temptations of the devil. When Paul is admonishing Christians in the 6th chapter of the book of Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God, he is implying there is a battle out there. And you need to be prepared for it. And in order to be prepared for it, you're going to have to put on the whole armor of God. That includes the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6 and verse 17. Well, I want to be a Christian, but I don't know if I want to read the Bible all the time. If I want to read the Bible every day, something is missing with that attitude. It harkens back to the days of ancient Egypt and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who would be happy for the children of Israel to be released so long as they don't go very far. As long as I can stay attached to you and draw you back in, that'll be all right. And that's the way sometimes Christians do. When we are baptized, we leave a wicked world. We change states. We leave a wicked world and we become children of righteousness. The Lord adds us to His blood-bought body, the church. We're no longer of the world. 
We have been delivered from the world. And we're not to love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God shall abide forever. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. When we have the concept that we want to just step out of the world a little because there are things we enjoy in the world, we're having the same attitude of Pharaoh who hardened his heart against God. The church needs to be very important to us because it is the kingdom of God and it should have first place in our life. So as you think about this, think about the purpose for which Pharaoh was raised up, that God might show in him his power. Romans 9 and verse 17. And there's a lesson for us. We don't think Pharaoh's very wise, and nor would we think very much of the children of Israel if they accepted his request and went for just a little, not very far, but so he could draw them back in. In the next place, you'll remember in chapter 10 and verse 11, Pharaoh didn't want them to take their children to worship. Moses would have none of it. Is there an example in that for you and me? I've cited the passage too in Ephesians 6, 4, where the Bible says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's a distinct requirement for those who are fathers, to bring their children up in the discipline and the teaching of the Lord our God. And when it becomes the case that someone doesn't want to take his children to worship, he's following in the same old hard-hearted attitude that ancient Pharaoh had. Well, obviously now, Pharaoh didn't think the kids needed to be in worship. Why do you need to... You're going to be doing what? Animal sacrifices out there? Why, these children aren't going to be able to follow that. They're not going to know what that's all about. Why don't you leave them here? I know you'll come back if I've got all your children. And I don't think they need to be in worship anyway. Some years ago, there was a popular thing that took place among religious people, and it may still be, there may still be some of this lingering today, called children's worship, where they would carve the children out of the worship and take them back in a room, and they say they would teach them on their own level. Well, when I was a boy, I learned on my own level. If I sat beside my mother and began to doze off, I got an elbow. If I sat beside my mother and my thoughts began to wander and I began to look around, boy, I turn around here and look and listen. You can learn a lot when you're small if you know how to pay attention. And if you don't know and you're sitting by your mother and your father, they'll teach you. You know, one time I visited with a family and they were members of a large denominational church and they had a big children's worship. And the guy was telling me, I don't think much of this children's worship. I said, well, would you share with me why not? Because I know there are other things about their worship that are out of line too, but that's what he's talking about, so I asked, why not? He said, well, they take those kids off in a separate room back there, and they have children's church with them, and then when they turn five years old, they come back into the auditorium. And when they come back into the auditorium, guess what? They don't know how to act. And they are disturbing and disrupting the, our, our worship in the auditorium. Well, now that showed me that you could carve those children out and supposedly teach them something on their own level, and it's not going to benefit them when it comes to the worship assembly of the saints. And I think they made a mistake when they took those children out. I think somebody, they had other problems too, but since I've seen that in the Church of Christ, allow me to say this, I think there's somebody that doesn't understand or know the Bible doctrine of the assembly. Do you know the Bible has a doctrine concerning the assembly, a teaching concerning the assembly? It's simply put and stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, the whole congregation comes together in one place. That's the assembly. Everyone comes together to worship God. Men and women, boys and girls, 
children, grown men, old people, young people, come together in the assembly. The Bible doctrine of the assembly. That's where the Lord's Supper takes place. If we don't understand the Bible doctrine of the assembly, it is going to negatively reflect upon our observance of the Lord's Supper. Just leave the children out. They can't understand it anyway. Oh, you'll be surprised what the children can understand. Sometimes I think parents have a little bit of a flaw in thinking their children are younger than they are. Small children have asked me questions that surprised their parents that they knew about or thought about. And I said, oh yeah, they know more than you give them credit for knowing. Well, it's important for us to see the value of raising these children up. When Paul commends young Timothy, he commends him for the genuine or unfeigned faith that dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also, 2 Timothy 1, 6. Where was Timothy's faith? First in Lois, then in Eunice, his mother, and now in him. They had brought that boy up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Have you ever thought about how young Timothy is when Paul takes him with him on that missionary journey? He's a teenage boy. Have you ever thought about what happened prior to that in Acts chapter 14? Paul is preaching. The people don't like his preaching. And they stone him. He's unconscious. And they drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. He gets up on his feet and walks right back into the city. At Lystra, where Timothy is from, it may be that Lois and Eunice are observing these things. Next thing you know, Paul's knocking on their door. I'd like for you to let Timothy go with me on the missionary journey. What? He might be treated like you were. That'll be fine. We sing a song, Faith of Our Fathers, and we plead, oh, that our faith might be like theirs, who when called upon to suffer did so. That's not a quote from the song, but it's a sentiment from the song. Lois and Eunice saw that. They knew that Christianity may cost you everything you have. Oh, but he's a young boy and full of potential. What if his life were cut short? So be it. He's in God's hands. That's the design and the desire of us in bringing our children up in the teaching and the discipline of the Lord to turn them over to God like Hannah turned Samuel over to God and he served him all his life. You think about what Pharaoh said, but don't take your children to worship. Those children need to be in the worship of God. Oftentimes it's the case when those children are in all the services of the church, they develop an appreciation for the worship of God that lasts them all their lives. And as parents, we're the only ones that can give them that opportunity. Many times in summer camp with young children who are obeying the gospel, old enough to know that they have sinned and need Christ, they obey the gospel to go back home to either unfaithful parents who are members of the church or parents who are not members of the church at all. And what a struggle it is for them to even assemble to worship. They want to worship God. They show that it can. They pay attention in Bible class. They're very exuberant in their worship, wanting to learn and wanting to know. And you just know that if these kids had Christian parents, they would be splendid examples of our faith. But yet in some instances, they do not have a supportive home life. When we can take our children to worship and set the example before them, we're instilling in them something that can last all of their life. I know one of the things that Sheila does in her Bible class is to teach the children how to behave. And she encourages them to sit down to the front where you can see what's going on. 
and to pay attention to the lesson. You know, you say, well, the lesson may be over the heads of these children. Don't count them too short. You and your wife want to have a private discussion. What do you do? You go in another room. You don't have to. Well, they're just as small in that regard as they are if they're sitting in the services of the church. You think they might gather something from your conversation you don't want them to hear that they don't need to hear. You respect them in that regard because they can understand some things. Why doesn't that apply when it comes to the worship of God? I'll tell you one thing that they can't miss. They'll be sitting beside you, seeing the example that you set in singing and in praying and in studying the Bible. And even if they couldn't understand a syllable from the pulpit, they see in mom and dad a couple who want to serve their God. And that example is an argument that they will never be able to refute, should they ever desire to. So we've seen two points then in Pharaoh's reply to Moses in encouraging him to take away the punishment of these plagues. Don't go very far away, chapter 8, verse 28, and then don't take your children with you to worship, chapter 10, and verse 11. And the third thing, it'll be all right for you to go, but we want you to leave your cattle and herds behind. As you know, they were going to offer these animals in sacrifice unto God. And this is where Moses says in the next verses there, oh, we're going to take the cattle with us when we go, and there will not a hoof be left behind. Moses wanted them to worship God. Pharaoh did not want them to worship God with their livelihood. It'll be all right as long as you don't have that level of commitment that is going to cause you to expend your livelihood in that worship. You know that when we examine the New Testament, we find that there are five avenues of adoration to the Almighty. There is singing. There is preaching. There is the observance of the Lord's Supper. There is praying. And there is the giving of our means. I like the way Brother Winford Clark put it when you come to 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, where the subject is discussed. He said, have you noticed what's before this? In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we call that the resurrection chapter of the Bible. And you come through Paul's reasoned arguments about the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the anticipation of our own resurrection. And then he takes them to an open grave. And he says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The strength of sin is the law. And he has the picture there of one standing before an open grave after his resurrection and seeing victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. He admonishes them then, Be ye therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. They've seen the graveyard. They've seen the glory of the resurrection. Now having established that, he says in chapter 16, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. I like a church building, if you could have the ideal design of the church property, where you've got a large cemetery out front, and where the only access to the church building would be drive through the cemetery and to come to the services of the church. Because you'll have your mind pretty well affixed where it needs to be in recognition of our mortality before we come to study the Bible and worship God. And here you'll find that's exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15. He took them on a stroll through the graveyard to remind them of their mortality. And then he said, now concerning the collection of the saints. You're ready to give now because you see what you have is temporary. Your whole life here is not permanent and one day it's all going to be left behind. You need to focus on the collection of the saints. You notice he says as he's given order. It's a Bible directive, a command for us to give. How we are to give finds discussion, as you know, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We are to give cheerfully, not grudgingly, not of necessity, 
God loves a cheerful giver. The idea of worship is to show adoration to God. Last night we were studying a word that had to do, or a passage that had to do in a particular word, with the answer of a good request or of a good conscience before God. We saw in that a request for a clear conscience. We saw also involved in the meaning of that word, epirotema, we saw that it meant the intention of a pledge or a commitment of service to God. We demonstrate that when we give of our means. God has always expected His people to give. It is said of Moses, or rather of Abraham in the patriarchal age, that he could be traced in his travels by the smoke that ascended from his altars. He's offering sacrifices unto God. You see that in the Old Testament when these people are released and finally they build the tabernacle. The people come and Moses has to restrain them from giving because they're so grateful for their newfound freedom. In the New Testament, you'll learn that when the church is established, one of the first things we find in Acts 2 and verse 42 is that they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. That fellowship has to do with the joint participation and the communion uh, communion together in one cause with the collection of the saints. You see it in Acts 20 and verse 7 when the Lord's Supper is observed on the first day of the week right along with the giving of our means in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. When we read in the Bible about Pharaoh, and he says you can go, but you take, can't take your flocks and herds, we don't have any trouble saying, man, this man has missed it. Pharaoh has missed it. These, you know, if you've never read that before, you know that Moses is not going to accept that. Because in order to please God, you want to serve God of your abundance, of your livelihood. And there is no way that they can worship God and leave their flocks and herds behind. There's no way that we can please and serve God today and leave our pocketbook behind. It's so important for us to see that. The man that was foolish in Luke chapter 12, all he thought about is what he had. And he was looking for a way to hold on to it and keep it. Do you remember that? Tearing down his barns, building bigger barns. They went to bestow all his goods. And he said, Soul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord said, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? We don't really have anything. We are really technically and exactly stewards of everything. We have the opportunity to enjoy a measure of material prosperity. And the Lord expects us to acknowledge Him in returning the portion that we determine upon the first day of the week. The church is advanced by those gifts and offerings. The cause of Christ is spread through those means. And we are thankful to be able to participate in that. I heard a story about a fellow going to be baptized. And he told the preacher, oh, hold on just a minute. i got my wallet in my pocket. And the preacher said, that's all right. You leave it there. It's going down with you. You need to have that wallet a part of what you're doing. I have seen across the time that I have been preaching the gospel, those who are extremely generous in their giving. Sometimes it is those who are in the lowest state of need that give the most. Why do you think that is? I think it is because they're turning loose of this land of the material and striving toward the land of endless day because they see this world is not their home. They're truly just passing through. We don't want to be deceived by the cares of riches. So you have these responses then on the part of Pharaoh. We never want them to have any part in our vocabulary of thinking. To say that, well, we can be involved in Christianity just don't go very far. Don't get very far off into it. 
It's good to hear today if you read the Bible all the time. Somebody will have to call you a fanatic. That's all right. Knock yourself out. The Bible says, Blessed is he that readeth. In Revelation 1.3, I want to be blessed by God. And I know you do too. We're going to be found reading the Bible and studying it and doing all we can to serve God. He's given us various abilities, and we want to use them as much as we can. Don't take your children to worship. Oh, yes. That was the attitude of Pharaoh. I don't know anybody who will say, I'm not taking my kids to worship. No, that's not the way it happens. We know that. It's, oh, you've got some place to go tonight? Oh, there's something you'd rather do? Maybe a recreational outing and a time of relaxation would be much better than going down to the church building and worshiping God. That's how we're actually saying, I'm not taking my children to worship. And don't take your livelihood. You know, when we work, what we do is we trade the hours of our life, our time, for an amount or a sum. And that sum then represents our life. So when that collection plate comes around and we've made that determination and we put in that sum of money, that reflects that many minutes and hours of our life and the ability and the strength that we had to come with those funds. So when we make that contribution, if we've first given ourselves 2 Corinthians 8, 5, we are actually giving a sacrifice of our life unto God as reflected in that collection. If we hoard and hold back, we're not wanting the Lord to have part of our life. You know, it is the case that when we give, we lay up treasures in heaven. And that's a wonderful thought. Well, I want you to see those three points tonight in the man who fought against God because none of us want to be guilty of fighting against God. So maybe these three areas of study tonight will be helpful in support of that. The man who fought against God. I hope we'll always and forever have the name of Pharaoh there and never, ever our own. When the children of Israel are released after the death of the firstborn, okay, you can let them go. Pharaoh lets the children of Israel go. And just about as soon as they get out of town, he changes his mind. And he wants them brought back. And as you know, there is that night a cloud that separates Israel from the Egyptians. There is light on the Israelite side and darkness on the Egyptian side. God extended his loving hand of protection down between them to keep them through the night. Moses raises his rod over the Red Sea. And an east wind blows and the sea separates. And the children of Israel are able then to escape and to walk out on the dry ground. They're walking in faith. You know, sometimes you see these movies and the people are just herding down through there helter-skelter. The Bible says they walked out in ranks in an orderly fashion. They crossed the Red Sea on the dry ground. When Pharaoh and his men pursued, after the children of Israel safely were over, the walls of the Red Sea collapsed on them and they drowned in the sea. Pharaoh was following. Pharaoh and his army drowned in the sea. The Bible says that the Lord saved Israel that day. Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. That's the day they were saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, there's an interesting parallel drawn to this when Paul says they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. If anyone has ever had a struggle with the idea of what is the mode of baptism, is clearly answered and pictured for us right here in the book of Exodus. They are going down into that seabed with water on either side. 
The cloud that had protected them that night, that was leading them this day, was overshadowing them. They were completely immersed in the Red Sea as they passed through. And they were saved that day. But Paul says, one who writes about New Testament baptism says, they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. When was the day that they were saved? It was the day that they were baptized. That's what the Bible teaches. You see the verses on the board right there. In thinking about that, you've seen this passage already. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. I've been talking to you about the gospel plan of salvation. And tonight again I want to show you this chart about the gospel plan of salvation. Because it tells you the steps of faith that we are to take in order to be saved. The gospel is God's power unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Last night we studied a lesson and we saw that God called Noah and his family into the ark. He said, Come thou and thy family into the ark. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. He is calling us out of the world. When we respond and go to Him, we are with God and Christ in His body. How we get there is through taking these steps of faith, just as the children of Israel took steps of faith across that seabed when they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The step of faith that we take is that of hearing the gospel. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Matthew 13 and verse 17. We know that this message is from heaven and we are to believe it. Matthew chapter 21 in verse 25. Further, Jesus taught, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're going to have to change your mind. Oh, wicked Pharaoh never would change his mind. He always hardened his heart. He could be persuaded and almost persuaded to do God's will, but God was asking him to do something he did not want to do, and he hardened his heart. The Bible will say Pharaoh hardened his heart. It will say God hardened his heart. How did God harden his heart? By asking that man to do something he didn't want to do. We can tell tonight about the condition of our heart if we can repent of past sins. If I'm here tonight and I am not a Christian, I need to repent of my sins. I can see this is a passage in the Bible, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. I can see that these are the actual words of Jesus where he called upon us to repent. Does that harden my heart? Is God hardening my heart by asking me to do something I don't want to do? On one occasion, I was extending the gospel plan of salvation, and everyone was standing, as we'll do in just a minute, and I noticed some boys that were being disruptive. And I noticed people looking over at the boys being disruptive. I know what they, they were talking about what they were going to do when they got out of the service of the church or something, poking and prodding, laughing. And so I stopped the song. And I didn't direct, uh, address them directly. I think they knew I was pointing that at them. And I said, I know why some of you are not willing to repent. I know that. And the reason is because you're not through sinning yet. You're not taking this message seriously enough to sit here and think about changing your mind. You're letting it drift off to the things you're wanting to do after the services of the church. you still got some more cussing you want to do. you still got some more smoking you want to do. you still got some more drinking you want to do. You still have other forms of morality you want to dabble in. And you don't want to think about repenting because you'll have to stop all the things you love. We didn't get interrupted anymore in the invitation song. We got their attention. 
I hope the point was carried that we need to change our hearts and turn our hearts and lives with all of the power of our being and the interest of our minds toward heaven's home and doing the will of God. That's what repentance is, a change or a turning in one's life. It was Jesus who said that we should confess him before men, and what a privilege it is to do that. Matthew 10, 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. Isn't that a wonderful thing and a great promise? If I will just stand up before this group tonight and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and go ahead and complete my obedience in baptism, Jesus promised in a written promise in the Bible... That out there on the plains of eternity, when this whole world has been burned up, and there are going to be billions of souls who do not even know the fate that they will have throughout eternity is ruined in a place called hell. We'll be standing on a promise that Jesus made, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I'll tell you, it buoys you along when you think about facing the chilly hand of death. To know that I stood before men as the Lord instructed me in Matthew 10.32 and confessed him to be the Son of God in full confident assurance that one day he'll confess me before my Father in heaven. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Don't you want to hear Jesus utter those words to you? To do that, you need to confess him tonight. And it was our Lord who said in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 about being baptized, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Baptism puts us into Christ and the Lord adds us to the church as we discussed pretty thoroughly last night. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. Who puts you in the church of Christ? The Christ of the church. He's the one who does the adding. People talk about, I joined the church. Well, I know one thing is the wrong church if you joined it. Because the way the Lord designed His church, you don't join it. You obey Him, and He adds you to it. I heard Brother Tom Holland say one time, it takes divine action for you to get into the church of Christ. And that's what he was talking about. I thought that was a good perspective. It takes the divine action of you obeying the gospel of Christ, and then the Lord will add you to His church. Acts 2, 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's how you get into the church of Christ. It's his church, and he determines who comes into it by giving us the gospel plan of salvation and seeing those whose hearts are not hardened but who are tender and compliant to the will of God, who will render obedience to him and serve him all of their life, putting him and his kingdom first. That's a wonderful thought that tonight we can be saved from sin. I can't think of a single reason if a person's here and has not been baptized into Christ who has the ability to reason about the matters we've been discussing, who should postpone his obedience for another hour. Not another day or week, but another hour. I was talking about camp a while ago, and at one time at camp up here at Short Mountain, there were a lot of the young people obeying the gospel, and one young fellow, while he was just as interested as anybody else, he was learning just as much as everyone else. He was just as cooperative as anyone else and so much fun to be with. And I couldn't figure out why he wouldn't obey the gospel. And so after the others his age were obeying the gospel, I asked 
I said, would you mind to tell me why you're not obeying the gospel? I could see when we talk about it, he would be nervous, shifting. Why, why are you not obeying the gospel? He said, I'll tell you why. He said, my mama told me, don't you go up there to that camp and be baptized in front of kids you're only going to see up here once a year and think you're going to come back down here at home and not behave like a Christian all year long. If you want to be baptized, you be baptized down here before everybody. Well, we found that out. He made that decision. So on Sunday morning, I'm preaching in one congregation, and he wants me to baptize him. So as soon as I leave there, I've got to rush across town and baptize him. It had been a lot easier and better on all of us. He'd have been baptized with the rest of them. But in a way, I can appreciate what his mother was saying. You've got a life that you're going to live. And I don't want you to decide to become a Christian in an emotional setting and soon as the joy and thrill of that time, which it really is for all of us, starts to ebb away, so does your zeal and interest for the cause of Christ. Well, I'm happy to report he remains a faithful Christian to this day, a grown man. There is no reason for you to delay your obedience to the gospel invitation. Not another day, not another hour. Pharaoh tried every way he could to wiggle out of the request Moses was making. And I'm just thinking tonight that if you know you need to obey the gospel and you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm definitely going to do that. Do you think that's more a kindred to what you're reading in the New Testament or what you're reading in the Old Testament about Pharaoh? As your friend, I'm telling you, it's more an attitude that Pharaoh would have. If I can just put this off another hour, I, I've got some other things I need to work out and I'm just going to wait on it. You need to obey the gospel tonight. The Bible tells us, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. We hope you'll render obedience to the gospel of the Son of God tonight. All of us who are Christians, if there's some outstanding sin in our life of which we need to repent, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 7. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5 and 16. I'm so glad that the Lord gives us the opportunity when we are Christians and we've not been as strong as we need to be. We've not been putting the church first like we ought to be. We may have mistreated our children, oh, not physically, but by not bringing them up like they ought to be. Maybe we didn't set the proper example before them and it bears on our conscience and now then we can't get them to obey the gospel. I don't know what all may be going on. But if any of those things and others, and we feel we've sinned, we can confess that sin and pray God to forgive us. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that there's not a single reason tonight that we cannot pillow our heads in perfect peace, knowing that if it comes our time to quit the walks of men, we'll be received into the arms of glory. Heaven's invitation is before us tonight. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. And during this time, we want to encourage you to come forward and be baptized into Christ. If you're here and you're not a member of the church, I want to tell you what it's about. You come forward, you confess your faith in Christ, as we've seen here, and then provisions will be made for you to be baptized. Everybody will wait on you. We want to witness your baptism. We want to see you be baptized. And we will rejoice with you in the angels of heaven when you do that, as Luke chapter 15, verse 7 says. And you can go on your way rejoicing. I know sometimes you come in, you're not a member of the church, you think, man, those people are ready to get out of there. Oh, everybody's ready to go. There's no question about that. We've got busy lives. Some have traveled from great distances. But you just watch. You want to be baptized and you'll see the most joyous group of people you've ever seen. 
Most everybody, unless somebody has something urgent or pressing, will stay here to greet you when you go. We love you and your soul. We want you to obey the gospel of the Son of God. Heaven has made the provision, and we extend heaven's invitation at this time while we stand and together sing God's praises.